Hello and welcome to the January 2018 edition of the Free Movement Immigration Update podcast. My name is Colin Yeo. This month I'm going to start with a follow-up to the immigration rules changes we covered last month on calculating indefinite leave to remain applications and the residence periods. I'm going to cover the commencement of immigration bail provisions of the Immigration Act 2016. I'm going to take a, a fairly quick look at what we know so far about the settled status application process for EU citizens. I'm going to cover the legal situation on appeal rights against refusal of visit visas, return to the UK for those subjected to out-of-country appeals, several CJEU cases, including two on Dublin III processes, and I'm also going to cover some domestic cases, including on trafficking damages, costs, and the points-based system. That is quite a range of content, and everything is drawn from the January 2018 blog post on free movement. If you want to claim CPD hours for listening to this podcast, then head over to www.freemovement.org.uk slash training and sign up there as a member. Right, so first of all, we'll look at the changes to calculating the continuous residence rule for indefinite leave to remain applicants. Now, this change takes effect from the 11th of January 2017, and in effect, it is retrospective. It's to do with the way that one calculates absences from the UK for categories where they have to show that they've been continually resident in the UK over a five-year period before they can apply for ILR, and that includes, for example, work-based categories such as Tier 2 General. Now, the current system, or the old system, um, was basically a 12-month rolling period. And so every 12 months would start again, and the 180 days that one is allowed um, would be reset and, and, and would begin again. The rules have been changing, though, so that instead of a 12-month period, it's a rolling period. And um, there are some people who, for various different business or personal reasons, may be outside the UK for um, substantial periods. And the fear is that those people who may have been quite careful about making sure that there was never any more than 180 days absences during um, a 12-month period counting backwards from their intended date of application, um, they might get caught out by the change to the rule, which requires them to to be um, checking that on a rolling basis, which is a rather different way of calculating it. So it, it sounds like quite a technical change, and hopefully it won't affect too many people, but it is likely to affect some, and it means that they potentially won't be eligible for ILR. Um, and and will eventually have to to leave the UK, basically. So it's quite an unfortunate um, change to the rules, and it's certainly unfortunate that there wasn't any warning of this happening um, or any consultation or anything like that. So, um, yeah, watch out for that if you are dealing with those ILR applications. Okay, moving on, next topic is immigration bail. Now, this came into force from the 15th of January 2018, and it's basically bringing into effect a new system of formal immigration bail under the Immigration Act 2016. Um, It's quite a different system because it replaces the whole system of temporary admission and um, bail that was granted by chief immigration officers, immigration officers, or by the tribunal, and it's now one overarching system of immigration bail. It's governed by Schedule 10 of the 2016 Act, and I can't really give you a sort of mini training course on that in this podcast, but for example, the forms have changed, there's new policy guidance, Um, we know that there's going to be new guidance for judges, although that hasn't actually been issued at the time of speaking, even in late February. Um, So it's a very different legal framework, and there are some quite concerning, should we say, changes as well. So, for example, um, a grant of immigration bail to a person does not prevent the person's subsequent detention, Schedule 10 says. That's uh, so 10, Schedule 10, paragraph 1-5. Um, what, what on earth that means? <laughs> it's, it's rather difficult to comprehend, frankly. Um, there's also the possibility of detaining somebody um, even 
if it's because of a prospective um, possible breach of a bail condition. So um, this is reading from Schedule 10, Paragraph 10.1. Um, an immigration officer or constable may arrest without warrant a person on immigration bail if the immigration officer or constable A has reasonable grounds for believing the person is likely to fail to comply with a bail condition. Um, probably on a day-to-day -day basis, the, the main concern, though, is that um, judges are, in effect, encouraged by the way that the um, system is structured to, um, if they do grant bail, then allow the Home Office to manage that bail. And the concern is that, for example, in a hard-fought bail application where the judge decides that reporting might be monthly instead of what the Home Office is asking for, which is weekly, or there's some other dispute over conditions, um, the judge makes their decision, says that it's monthly, orders that the Home Office then manages bail, and the Home Office quietly changes it to weekly, which is what they wanted all along in the first place. So um, it would be interesting to see how this pans out in practice, but on the face of it, it certainly looks like it's additional powers to detain and potentially less scrutiny of the conditions attached to bail as well. Okay, moving on to look at what we know about the settled status application process. This is based on a post by my colleague, Naf Giblicki, um, it, it's, a, it's an interesting post because it, it's sort of what NAFA is trying to do is bring together the different sources of information that we currently have about the settled status application process. Because as much as the government seems to be trying to assure people that it's all settled, it certainly isn't as far as we can see now. And um, th there's not a lot that we know about what the actual process is going to be. Uh, they say it's going to be online and it seems to be that means genuinely online. So the, the Home Office at the moment talks about online application processes, which is basically an online form, but then which has to be printed and posted to the Home Office at the end of it, which is hardly a sort of proper online process. The settled status application process, the Home Office says, will be a proper one where it's actually you can upload your documents and, and, and things like that. It doesn't have to be posted. Um, we don't know exactly when the process will start either. Um, apparently late um, 2018 is the, the latest information we have. We don't really know um, what kind of criteria are going to be applied because um, when he was still immigration minister, he's, he's not now, um, Brandon Lewis was saying that the only check would simply be that you are an EU national and that you have been living in the UK for the time that you claim. Um, so there wouldn't be any check on income, there wouldn't be check on comprehensive sickness insurance or, or anything else like that. There would be a criminal records check, but 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 that's all. Um, that doesn't quite seem to match with the agreement between the UK and the EU, although that agreement does say that the UK could be more generous than what the agreement says. Um, the, past the problem here, I think it, it's, it's useful to put some context in here before I move on to the next topic, is that the EU hasn't really been... Um, arguing on behalf of EU nationals who are in the UK outside EU law. The EU is simply asking that EU law is, is applied and respected. And the UK position is that EU law, for example, requires private health insurance, not access to the NHS, and, and also requires a certain level of income, which, which is frankly disputable. I mean, it's it, the, the Home Office view on the, the resources that a person has to be earning in order to be um, genuine and effective employment is, is obviously wrong in EU law. Um, but you know, that's, that's kind of by the by because the Home Office is saying that they're not going to apply those rules in any event. Um, so if you're interested in what's what we know, then do take a look at that post. Um, obviously, once we find out more information, we'll update it um, or um, we'll put out some new information when it's available.
I want to mention quickly that we updated a couple of our major blog posts in January as well. So we've updated the blog post on comprehensive sickness insurance and also the blog post on how to make a permanent residence application, um, covering slight changes to what we know about that since they were last updated. OK, I want to move on now to talk about appeal rights in visit visa applications, which has been a bit of a, a sort of topic that I've returned to on a number of occasions on free movement. Uh, it's something that for various reasons I've been particularly interested in. And we've seen over the last few months a series of three Court of Appeal cases, which have basically very seriously restricted um, the right of appeal against refusal of a visit visa, where somebody claims to have a human rights link to the UK. The three cases are Abbas, um, 2017, EWCA, Civ 1393, Copoi, 2017, EWCA, Civ 1511, and then finally Onarua, which is 2017, EWCA, Civ 1757. Um, the, the panels in these cases are all slightly different, although I think Lord Justice sells in at least two of them. And... Um, one of the interesting things which I've highlighted in the, the blog, which perhaps explains um, why the Court of Appeal seems to have, in, in my view, gotten the wrong end of the stick in the way that they've approached these, is that in the first of these cases, for some reason, um, even though there was no appellant appearing and the appellant was unrepresented, um, that one went first. And the Home Office seem to have been rather remiss in bringing critical cases to the attention of the Court of Appeal. But nevertheless, that case, Abbas, even though um, one of the parties is unrepresented, um, then becomes effectively a precedent which determines the other two uh, appeal cases. Now, that, th there's something seriously wrong with that, frankly, in my view, but um, that does seem to be what happened. Abbas, on the face of it, concerns private life in visit visa cases, and essentially, um, it, it's held that there's almost never going to be a right of appeal or never going to be a right of appeal um, or against the refusal of a visit visa on the basis of private life. The next case is Kapoi, which deals with um, family life. And in that case, um, family life appeals are severely restricted um, to the point where it, it's even in a spouse case, it's not completely clear that the Court of Appeal agrees that there might actually be um, a right of appeal. And as an aside, before we go on to the last case, I, one does wonder how the Court of Appeal squares this with the actual legislation, which says that there is a right of appeal in, in human rights cases um, where, where there's a, a refusal of a visit visa. Anyway, the, the, the third case is on Rua, and this sort of deals with, with both private and family life. And the, the reasoning is a lot better in this case, in a sort of, you know, if we stand back from this and, and set aside our, our personal opinions on what we'd like in terms of access to justice, the reasoning is certainly clearer and more logical in this case. Um, but unfortunately, the, the damage had already been done and um, the, the Court of Appeal has to follow, in that case, the, the, the earlier two cases. So there are a number of criticisms that we can make. I don't think it's particularly useful to go over them um, here in the, the, the podcast, but that is essentially the situation on family visit visas. There is, uh, it is going to be very rare that there's a human rights appeal. Um, those cases, we, I understand, are being investigated, shall we say, on the, the prospect of a, uh, an application for permission to appeal to the Supreme Court. Um, the, the issues are fairly significant. Obviously, the fact that these three cases were all heard within just a, a few weeks of each other, I think, um, suggests that there's something of importance here. Um, but at the time of speaking in February, there's still no news on whether that is going to go to the Supreme Court or not. I certainly hope that it does. 
Right, so I'm going to move on now to another rather unwelcome Court of Appeal case. This one is Nixon, um, 2018 EWCA CIV 3. And this concerns out-of-country appeals and interprets the um, fallout, shall we say, from the Kieran Bindloss Supreme Court decision last year on deport first appeal later cases. Now, um, as I pointed out at the time of Kiarian Bindloss, quite a lot of um, appellants had been removed from the United Kingdom under the Section 94 certificates that mean that they could only appeal after they'd left the UK and they had to um, pursue their appeals from abroad, even though the House of Lords held that that was unlawful in the vast majority of cases. Now, the House of Lords didn't say that the um, the legislation itself was unlawful, um, but did say that unless there was an effective right of appeal, then an out-of-country appeal wasn't going to be acceptable. So what the Court of Appeal does in this case is look at some linked cases where people had already been removed under these Section 94 certificates and um, ask the question, look, should they be allowed back in in order to pursue their appeals in country? And in short, the answer is no, basically. Now, that, that comes as quite a surprise, um, frankly, because the House of Lords was quite clear that um, access to justice uh, was a, a very important principle. Um, but nevertheless, the Court of Appeal takes the view that there's no presumption in favour of return, even where the certification was unlawful. Interestingly, the Court of Appeal also flags up that the Home Office and Tribunal have been testing out-of-country video link appeals um, being provided free of charge and also allowing legal representatives to discuss things with their appellant via video link, and presumably for the Home Office to try and sidestep the Chiari and Bindloss case and ensure that there is actually a viable appeal process where you can take instructions, gather evidence and, and, and instruct your lawyer and so on. So there may well be, um, we haven't heard the, the last of the out-of-country appeal system and maybe there is still some life in it. We shall see. I'm looking now at um, three CJEU cases. That's the um, Court of Justice of the European Union. Now, the first of these, which is reference C-473-16, a case called Hivital, is, is frankly just a bizarre case, but it comes from Hungary and it's an asylum case, which perhaps explains it because the... Um, the, 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 you know, if we think the, the, the situation for asylum seekers in the UK is hostile, well, you know, it, it's a lot worse in, in Hungary. And um, essentially, the question that was referred was whether it was acceptable to refuse a person's asylum claim based on their sexuality, um, where their sexuality had not been confirmed by uh, a psychologist's report based on projective personality tests. Now, this is just bizarre because we, we would have thought that this was actually laid to rest by an earlier case called ABC, um, as well as just being obviously wrong and unlawful and inhumane. Um, but, you know, it takes yet another case from the CJEU to say that that's, that, that is so. And um, one hopes that that's going to improve the approach of, of, of countries which are um, still persisting in subjecting asylum seekers to those kinds of testing procedures. There's a couple of cases on Dublin 3. Um, the first one is C-160-16, a case called Hassan, which deals with procedural points on Dublin 3, um, basically um, the transfer procedure and what happens where somebody returns to the original country after they've been transferred. And the, the, the questions for the court were whether the reviewing court was entitled to take into account subsequent developments to the first decision to transfer, um, also, whether the first decision um, definitively determines the um, identity of which member state should determine 
um, the, 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 the asylum claim. And then finally, um, is, is a new take-back request subjected to a new time limit, as in, is there a two-month cut-off before it, it, it lapses for the member state? And essentially, the court finds in favour of the, the claimant on all of those issues. Subsequent events can be taken into account. The first decision to transfer does not t um, definitively determine the responsibility of which state um, should decide the claim. And um, there is a time limit of two months cut off um, for the, the second um, take-back request as well. So if you're dealing with um, Dublin 3 cases, then that's an important reading. Otherwise, it is fairly technical. Another quick Dublin case, this is RSM against Secretary of State for the Home Department 2018 EWCA Civ 18. And in this case, the Court of Appeal considers the ambit of Article 17 of the Dublin 3 regulation, which is the um, discretionary clause it's, it's sometimes referred to. So it states that each member state may decide to examine an application for internal protection lodged with it by a third country, country national or stateless person, even if such examination is not its responsibility under the criteria laid down in the regulation. Now, the facts of this case were, were tragic, as in, in many of these cases. But the child applicant, his mother and I think another family member had died um, attempting to cross the Mediterranean. He had survived. He had made an asylum claim in Italy, but wished to join his aunt, who was a recognised refugee in the UK. Now, unfortunately, Italy hadn't done what it should have done, which is make a, a transfer request to the United Kingdom. And so this child, um, through his lawyers, was applying um, for that to happen anyway, for him to be transferred uh, irrespective of the fact that Italy hadn't made the request. Now, the tribunal had allowed his application, or the aunt's application, perhaps more, more accurately, but the Court of Appeal says that that was wrong. Now, happily for the particular claimant in this case, um, they, the, the, they had managed to prompt Italy to make the transfer request. It had been made, and the UK had accepted responsibility, and he was now in the UK. So in, in lots of ways, the judgment is academic from his point of view. However, for other uh, future claimants, it, it, it's not a good outcome, because essentially the, um, the Court of Appeal overturns what the tribunal says, says the tribunal has misread um, Dublin procedures, and that um, it, it's really um, not for the tribunal to make a mandatory order um, requiring the Secretary of State to admit a child in those sorts of circumstances. So um, not good news generally, but rest assured it, it, it was okay for that particular claimant who had a, in, in the end been admitted to the UK anyway. Now, uh, yet another Court of Appeal case dealing with deportation issues. Now, in this one, um, the, the, the main interest, I think, is that the Court of Appeal makes some rather unhelpful comments about the internal relocation test for, for criminals in the context of Article 3 of the ECHR and says that um, essentially that a different standard might well apply to criminals and what is unduly harsh for one person might not be for another and what is due to a person might well include consideration of their criminal offending. It does rather sound like different standards of human rights might well apply to criminals. Um, and I, th I think explicitly that is essentially what the Court of Appeals here is saying here in this case, which is called SC Jamaica 2017 EWCA Civ 2112. There are other issues as well. The Court of Appeal looks at paragraph 399A of the immigration rules. And um, there's a fairly obvious point about what most of life means, and the Court of Appeal says that that must mean more than half, but also looks at lawful residence and imports a test from elsewhere in the immigration rules to uh, slightly helpfully for some claimants, I think, in this case, say that where somebody's been on temporary admission and has subsequently been granted leave, 
then that temporary admission counts as lawful residence. Um, and then also looking at just generally the, the correct approach to Article 8 ECHR in the context of deportation cases and making some comments about the, the complexity of the rules. So um, if, if you're interested in following the ongoing, never-ending saga of the Court of Appeal overturning tribunal's decisions on deportation, then that is your latest instalment. A couple of cases on costs now. Now, um, we saw some recent guidance from um, former President McCloskey on the tests to be applied in appealing a costs decision to the Court of Appeal. And the Court of Appeal has basically overruled one of the key findings in that, that guidance case. So the Court of Appeal case is Noanko against Secretary of State for the Home Department, 2018, EWCA Civ 5. And the short point is that it, in, in appealing a decision of the upper tribunal on costs in a judicial review case, it's a first appeals test case, not a second appeals test case. Um, now, lawyers will probably understand what I'm saying by that, which is um, second appeals test is a more stringent one. There's got to be um, some sort of public interest um, element, generally speaking, or other compelling reason for an appeal to be allowed to proceed. So it's quite hard um, to, to engage the second appeals test, whereas the first appeals test is basically just was, was there an error of law. So the rest of the guidance um, remains standing, but it's important to note that um, the, it, it, the tribunal got it wrong in that earlier guidance case on the nature of the appeal to the Court of Appeal. Now, the, the blog post that I'm taking this from is by John Vassalou, who's at McGill & Co. And he's pointed out that there's an interesting decision in Scotland, um, which seems to be saying that um, it's in, in, in other contexts, now this is moving away slightly from costs, but just in all contexts, um, there is no second appeals tests for appeals from the tribunal to the court of session in Scotland. And that looks like it's probably a drafting error, but that's how it's been interpreted um, and applied by um, the courts in Scotland. So an, an interesting one to watch out for and um, one to which we're planning to return later. Okay, another quick costs one, and this is a very short point. It's a case called Shote, S-H-O-T-E, um, 2018, EWHC 87 admin. And it's a case where uh, it was an unlawful detention case um, which failed, but um, Michael Fordham QC, sitting as a Deputy High Court judge, declined to make a costs order against the claimant. Um, now, that would normally follow where the claimant loses. Normally, they'll be subjected to a costs order where they have to pay the costs of the Secretary of State. But um, in this case, they decided not to, the court decided not to make that order um, because they wanted to um, mark the court's disapproval of the clear and inexcusable default in her filing of her deta detailed grounds and evidence within the time frame required, required by the rules and directions of the court. So essentially, um, filing the detailed grounds and evidence was due on the 6th of July 2017 in this case, but it wasn't filed until the 31st of October 2017 after the claimant's skeleton argument. No good reason had been put forward and the court decides not to make an award of costs. Now, we might contrast that quite heavily with the approach of the upper tribunal, which is routinely and automatically to extend time to the Secretary of State with no penalty whatsoever. So the um, High Court taking a slightly um, stricter view there, shall we say, than the upper tribunal on um, flouting of the procedural time limits. OK, moving on to a couple of um, um, points-based system, points system cases. This um, first one is called Sri Prathanik, um, and it's 2017 EWHC 3204 admin. 
In this case, the company concerned had managed to obtain a um, sponsor license in order to employ people who passed the resident market, um, resident labour market test. Um, had then recruited somebody. The Home Office was suspicious that they um, hadn't applied a proper uh, recruitment procedure. Um, the company clarified that they had and sent in evidence, but in the course of doing so, showed that they had unfortunately uh, employed the employee after the six months of the um, certificate of sponsorship had been issued. Now, that was outside the sponsor guidance and the court essentially holds that it was a mandatory requirement and it was mandatory that the sponsor licence was revoked for that kind of breach. So it's pretty um, harsh um, outcome for the company concerned and, of course, for the employee concerned as well, who was in the UK by this point. The second case is London College of Business Limited against Secretary of State for the Home Department 2017 EWHC 3144QB. Now, this one came out just before Christmas, but it's worth mentioning because it shows that the Home Office guidance cuts both ways and that if the Home Office goes beyond its own guidance, then it may well be acting unlawfully. However, that actually doesn't assist the claimant in this case, London College of Business, which had gone through um, quite a tumultuous period from 2012 onwards when it was first alleged by Crime Stoppers um, that it was issuing fake degrees. That was followed up by a Sky News investigation. Further allegations were made and it was also the subject of a BBC Panorama report raising concerns that English language tests had been falsified. So the sponsor licence was um, cast in some doubt by this, this whole media whirlwind and it was suspended in um, 2012, reinstated. That happened again in 2013 and in 2014. And then it was properly revoked in 2015. And essentially, the High Court holds that the original decision in 2012 was lawful, but the Home Office's conduct after that was unlawful. And that included the decision to suspend in 2017, which was based on matters other than non-compliance with the duties placed on sponsors by the sponsor guidance, as well as delays in reinstating the licence for five months in 2012, three months in 2013, and almost a year in 2014. So it's pretty poor conduct by the Home Office in this case. However, it doesn't avail the company concerned because they were outside the time limit imposed by the Human Rights Act 1998 of one year um, from the date the Act took place. So very unfortunate outcome for the company concerned and something of a Pyrrhic victory. Final case to mention is um, a really horrifying, frankly, trafficking case. Now, we're not going to go over the facts of this one, but um, if I can say that the trafficking victim wins a notional award of damages against former employers of over 260,000 but doesn't see a penny, that, that gives you an idea of, of, of what's gone wrong in this case. So um, essentially it was um, a claimant bringing a case against former employers. There was a um, delay in the assets of the employers being frozen. Now, the Freshfields Bruckhouse Derringer were acting pro bono in this case. They acted with alacrity. They applied for an interim charging order on the house of the sponsors to prevent it from being um, disposed of, essentially. Freshfields made quite clear the urgency of the case, but the central London County Court failed to allocate it to a judge for three weeks. And during that time, the employers transferred their house to a third party, meaning that the trafficking victim was unable um, to to put a charge on the house and basically secure compensation that way. However, um, she was able to secure compensation of over £35,000 against the employers. However, um, lots of howevers going on here. Um, 
unfortunately, the legal aid statutory charge basically eliminates that because of the costs of the litigation, which had included an eight-day trial on the um, employment um, side of things here. So although some was recovered, some money was recovered from the employers, it was wiped out by the statutory charge and all of the claimant's arguments that that was basically unfair and unlawful failed and she didn't see any compensation at all for what she'd been put through. Okay, so that ends the January 2018 podcast. I'll be back next month. I hope that was helpful. Bye.